welcome to the next episode of How Good It Is, a weekly podcast that takes a closer look at songs from the rock and roll era, and we check out some of the stories behind those songs, and of course, the artists who made them famous. My name is Claude Paul, and has, has anyone seen spring? Because I think we skipped straight to summer. Don't forget to check out the website, howgooditis.com, and the Twitter, and the Instagram, and of course, the Facebook page, which you can find over there at facebook.com slash how, how good it is pod. So before we begin, of course, here is this week's trivia question. There is a song in the Rolling Stones catalog that they didn't sing in concert for several years because people erroneously thought that that's the song that they were singing when an audience member was killed at the Altamont concert. What's the name of that song and what were they actually singing? I will have that answer at the end of the program. So, Bridge Over Troubled Water was the final studio album for Simon and Garfunkel, and it was not only their biggest album, it was the biggest uh, selling album for the years 1970, 1971, and 1972, and it was the best selling album of all time until Michael Jackson's Thriller was released. But the first single from that album, while easily the most produced, was not their biggest hit by a long shot. Between the album Bookends and the subsequent release of the film The Graduate, Simon and Garfunkel were one of the biggest acts in the music industry. Paul Simon was being asked to write music for several uh, film and Broadway projects, and it was around this time that Art Garfunkel began his acting career, appearing in Catch-22, a film project that took much longer than originally planned. Now, because of the long shooting schedule and the fact that Paul Simon's part in the film had been written out, well, that left Simon to do most of the writing on his own. Now, the way they typically work is that Simon would write a couple of songs, and then they'd go in and record them, and then they would knock off for a while while Simon wrote another couple of songs. Now, with Art Garfunkel away for eight months, well, their musical relationship started to deteriorate a little bit. But ultimately, they managed to put together their biggest, in terms of scope, and perhaps most experimental album. And the opening track of Side 2, The Boxer, bears witness to this. The Boxer was recorded in several different locations and over 100 hours of recording time. There was so much material that a standard 8-track recorder just wasn't going to get the job done. Producer Roy Haley said in an interview with BMI that he devised a way to fake 16-track mastering by using two 8-track machines. There were a couple of technical problems created by doing this. Well, first, you had to hit the start buttons on both machines at exactly the same time. Then, as the machine started to heat up, the motors would start working at different speeds. So what he wound up doing was mixing about eight bars, then stopping, then mixing another eight, and so on. And as a result, there was a lot of editing that went on when they reassembled this work. Because Haley was working on maybe 15 seconds of the song at a time. Eight bars is not a lot. And this is on top of the 100 hours that were put into recording. So, what took up all that time? Well, to begin with, there were several different locations where different parts of the song were recorded. Columbia Records had studios in both New York City and Nashville, and that's where some of it was recorded. The chorus was recorded in a church, specifically St. Paul's Chapel at Columbia University. The church had this tiled dome in it and it made for some great acoustics, and it gave Simon and Garfunkel's voices some terrific depth. Now, 
Now, I bet I know what you might be thinking about, that big drum beat. Believe it or not, that was not recorded in the church. It was actually recorded at Columbia Studios in New York City. Hal Blaine was the drummer for this track, and he created that sound along with Roy Haley. They set up the drums in the hallway out in front of the elevator bank, and then they blocked a a set of elevator doors open so that the drums were right next to an open elevator shaft. So now all the other musicians are in the studio, and down the hall is Blaine with cables running from one end to the other for the microphones and a set of headphones so that Blaine can hear what's going on. And whenever that chorus came around, the la la lie part, Blaine would come down on his snare drum as hard as he could. Blaine himself recalled that in the hallway next to the open shaft, the drum sounded just like a cannon shot, which was exactly the sound they were after. Have another listen. There's also a story that at one point, an elderly security guard came out of one of the other elevators and was kind of startled by Blaine banging out this huge drum sound. Now, about that La 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 lyric, we've heard, we've talked about this a few times with regard to other pieces of music. Many times, a songwriter will have the melody they want, but not necessarily the lyric, so they just put anything in as a placeholder, and that placeholder is typically called a scratch lyric. Now, probably the most famous version of this would be Paul McCartney's Yesterday, which started out, he had a melody in his head, so he just plugged in some nonsense words so that he would remember it, and so it started out as, Scrambled eggs, oh my baby, how I love your legs. Or less famously, you've got this. See, that wasn't supposed to be part of the song, but everybody liked the way it sounded, and they left it alone. All those I knows were supposed to be lyrics, okay? Well, it turns out that Lila Lai was, in fact, a scratch lyric. Paul Simon once said in a 1990 interview with Song Talk magazine that he viewed it as a failure of songwriting because he didn't have any words there. And what further complicated it for him was that people were starting to view it as an actual lyric, like he was calling out lies that people were telling. So now there was an extra level of meaning that listeners were giving it. And in the end, he decided it was okay, and the rest of the song has enough power behind it to carry the whole thing. So he's kind of come to terms with it, especially in as much as the chorus, now being wordless, gave it a more international appeal. But he said personally, every time he had to sing that part, he was just a little bit embarrassed. Okay, now listen in on this section of the song. There's an instrument in there that I had a hard time identifying. It sounds kind of like a harmonica, but not quite. Stands a boxer and a fighter by his trade, and he carries the reminders of every glove that made him. In fact, that is a harmonica. It's a bass harmonica being played by Charlie McCoy. I have to admit, I didn't even know a bass harmonica was a thing until this week, so we're all learning something here. But this brings me around to something I like to call the sneaky MVP of the record. Some people will listen to a Jimmy Page lick or listen to the Beach Boys harmonies and say, yeah, that really makes the record. But when I talk about the sneaky MVP, I'm talking about stuff that's easily overlooked that really elevates the song. Listen right here. So you got those strings that are practically sneaking their way into the record and they're just underlining everything until they start to take greater precedence and now everything is starting to fall back. 
The singing and the drums, they're not getting lost, but they're certainly deeper in the mix while those strings are just soaring above it all. And this is what I'm talking about when I say sneak the MVP. The record's good already, but something like that really elevates the whole thing. But wait, it gets even better. Okay, listen closely next time it comes around to the Hal Blaine's drum beats. See, now along with that drum, you've got this really deep sound that sounds almost like a ship's horn. I actually crowdsourced this one among friends of mine who know orchestral instruments. Their consensus was that it's tubas, but there's one person who thought that the bass harmonica was also being used in there. At any rate, a song that starts out very sparsely now has grown into a full-blown gigantic sound until finally giving way to those original finger-picking guitars. Yeah, so let's talk about those guitars, okay? Because there are two of them, all right? One of them is Paul Simon, and the other one is being played by Fred Carter Jr. He did an interview in the magazine Fretboard Journal, and I'll bet you didn't know that was the thing, where he talks about recording the song. Carter says that when they started working on it uh, in New York, it still wasn't finished lyrically, so he didn't know the whole thing coming in. Carter's guitar was naturally a little bit higher than Simon's sound-wise, so he tuned the first string down to a D and the bass string to a G, which made it an open G tune. As I've said elsewhere, open tuning means setting up the strings so that when you strum across them without any fingers on the fretboard, the guitar will naturally play a specific chord. But Carter left the fifth string standard, so it wasn't quite an open G tuning. And with that, the two of them started noodling around until they landed on the lick they liked. Now Carter said that they had about seven different mics on him. There was a near mic, there was a distant one, there was one on the guitar's neck, there was another one on the hole, another one from behind, and there was still another one that caught his breathing. Supposedly, if you listen really carefully, you can make out the breathing because they left that one in the mix. Personally, I can't hear it, but okay. Carter also played a couple of other guitars on the record with chord and rhythm patterns, and he said he never heard the finished product until he heard it on the radio, and even he was amazed with how it sounded. So we need to get into the lyrics a little bit, I think. Uh, Paul Simon has said that the lyrics are mostly autobiographical, written at a time when he thought critics were being especially um, harsh about his work. Thus, he himself was the boxer in question. As he explained it in his interview in Playboy magazine in 1984, Simon and Garfunkel were getting almost nothing but praise, so when those first critical reviews started coming in, they stung extra hard. He said, and I quote, It took two or three years for people to realize that we weren't strange creatures that emerged from England, but just two guys from Queens who used to sing rock and roll. And maybe we weren't real folkies at all, unquote. The first couple of verses are in that first person, of course, somebody struggling to make it through loneliness and poverty in New York City. And there are some phrases in there that Simon has said come from the Bible, such as workman's wages and seeking out the poorer quarters. The last verse shifts into the third person, talking about a literal boxer who manages to stick around despite being tagged constantly by the fighters around him. And there's another verse that didn't make it onto the single, but there are recorded performances available. Such as this one from November of 1969. 
That's from a performance at the uh, Long Beach Arena, and they announced it as a song from their upcoming album. The verse takes the place of the short instrumental break that includes that piccolo trumpet. You can hear this track on the live 1969 album, which was released in 2009. The song was released as a single in March of 1969 and made it to number seven on the Billboard Hot 100. It charted a little bit higher in Canada, Austria, South Africa, the Netherlands, and Sweden, and in the UK it was a number six record. Uh, with the exception of a couple of adult contemporary charts, it did not reach number one anywhere. As far as covers of the song are concerned, there have been many, including by Bob Dylan, Waylon Jennings, the Celtic Tenors, Bruce Hornsby, and Mumford & Sons. And I find it interesting that all of them keep it pretty low-key, avoiding the big drums and the orchestral section. And Emmy Lou Harris did a cover which made it to number 15 on the country charts, and she made an interesting change to one lyric. Just a poor boy, though my story is seldom told. I've squandered my existence on a pocket full of mumbles, such a promises. I'm not sure if you caught that, but she changed. I have squandered my resistance to I have squandered my existence, which is interesting, mostly because for a long time that's what I thought the lyric was. So maybe Emmy Lou made the same mistake and decided, man, eh, it made more sense that way. Well, I left my home and my family. I was no more. And now it's time to answer today's trivia question. Uh, back on page two, I asked you to name the song that the Rolling Stones refused to sing in concerts for a while because people associated with the death of Meredith Hunter, the person who was killed at the 1969 Altamont Free Concert. Well, the song that the Rolling Stones were, were playing at the time was this one. So Under My Thumb was the song that the Rolling Stones were playing. And in fact, they, they, they started it and they stopped it. But I'll get into that in a second. The song that people seemed to think was being played was this one, Sympathy for the Devil. Now, why did this rumor get started? Well, who really knows? Uh, maybe because of the Hells Angels and people thinking that the song is about Satanism, which it's not. And I, I don't know. It's on film and people are stupid about it anyway. Now, to be fair, Sympathy for the Devil was on the set list, but they had already played it as their third song. Under My Thumb was the seventh song they played, and from the band's perspective, there was just another scuffle in the crowd. In fact, it was one of several since they had already stopped playing Under My Thumb and then restarted it because of fights breaking out. So when Wilson was stabbed near the end of that song, they had no idea what was going on, and it wasn't until afterward when Mick Jagger saw the footage that happened to capture the incident that he realized what had happened, and of course, he was appropriately horrified. The whole thing became the centerpiece of the documentary film Gibby Shelter, uh, but it was in 2006 that filmmaker Sam Green released his documentary titled Lot 63, Grave C, that people learned that Meredith Hunter's grave was unmarked, and it generated donations to the cemetery to have one installed, which they finally did in 2008. And that's a full lid on another edition of How Good It Is. This was a packed episode. 
If you're enjoying the show, please take the time to share it with someone and maybe even leave a rating somewhere. If you want to get in touch with the show, you can email me at howgoodpodcast at gmail.com or you can follow the show on Twitter or Instagram at howgooditispod. You can also visit, like, and follow the show's Facebook page at facebook.com slash howgooditispod or you can check out the show's website, howgooditis.com, where you might find a few extra bits. Thanks, as usual, to Podcast Republic for featuring the show. And next time around, we're going to find out how good it is when you're at the YMCA. This one's going to be fun. Thanks for listening, and I will talk to you next time.